You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Supreme Court has blocked House Democrats from getting access to confidential materials from special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia investigation for now, granting a request from President Trump's administration. The order raises new doubts about whether Democrats will see that information anytime soon. Joining me is Greg Storr, Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter. So, Greg, explain what this is all about. Well, this is about the Mueller report that was released more than a year ago with big parts of it redacted and with a lot of the underlying grand jury material not made available to members of, of Congress or the public for that matter. And because the Mueller report left a lot of unanswered questions, for example, he did not decide whether or not the president committed obstruction of justice. He said that since, since it's the Justice Department policy that the president can't be indicted while in office, I'm not going to reach that conclusion. And he sort of left the ball in Congress's court. And what this is, is Congress saying, okay, to make that determination, we need to see all the information, including the grand jury materials. So what are the arguments against that? Isn't there case law? I mean, I'm thinking of the Nixon case where the underlying documents were revealed. Yeah, this is actually a pretty uh, technical uh, question. It has to do with the federal rules of criminal procedure. And they say that a federal district judge can release grand jury material. Grand jury material is is generally secret. Uh, The judge can release that for a judicial proceeding. And the question here is whether an impeachment investigation is a judicial proceeding. We know that if it were in the court, if there was something in the courtroom, uh, a criminal trial, that would be a judicial proceeding. And uh, that's the underlying question that eventually the Supreme Court may have to sort out. Was this just an order? Was was there any opinion? There was no explanation, uh, no opinions, no noted dissent. It was just the court saying, we're going to put this lower court ruling that would have required the material to be turned over. We're going to put that on hold while we consider whether or not to take up the administration's appeal. And the court put the case on a fast track by requiring that the petition from the administration come by June the 1st. That'll mean the court can say before its term ends whether it's going to hear the case. If they say, no, we're not going to hear it, then the material uh, might be turned over in short order. But if they agree to hear it, that means we've extended this fight certainly into the fall and probably to the to the end of the, the current Congress and uh, Trump's term in office. What do the lower courts say about this? Well, the lower courts said that the material has to be turned over. They said that the impeachment is a judicial proceeding under the federal rules of criminal procedure. And had the Supreme Court not intervened, the material would have had to have been turned over uh, within, in very short order. The, the lower courts had set up a couple of tracks. There was a, the first two categories of material, including the stuff that is redacted in the report itself and the underlying grand jury materials, would have to be turned over right away. And the lower courts left open the possibility that later stuff could be turned over if the, the House Judiciary Committee showed a particular need for it. Since we went through an impeachment proceeding already, this comes to the court on the merits. Might the court look at this skeptically? You know, are the Democrats really looking into another, yet another impeachment proceeding after the conclusion of the last one? Yeah, that's one of the arguments that the Trump administration, Solicitor General Francisco, are making, which is that, you know, we've already had impeachment. That's over, and, you know, this is just a continual investigation. 
The counter-argument to that is the Judiciary Committee requested this material before the, the impeachment actually happened. Uh, and, of course, the president was impeached on completely separate charges involving strong-arming the Ukrainian government to do something that would help them politically. So, you know, the, the counter is, well, hey, you know, the only reason that we're, we can't consider this material in the Mueller report as part of the, that impeachment is because you dragged out this fight for more than a year. So people who saw the headlines on this saw this as a possible indication of what the Supreme Court might do on the Trump subpoena cases. Is there any correlation? Well, that's always a fair inference, if only because when the court takes on a stay application, which is what this is, one of the things they they look at, one of the factors is, how likely are we to agree to hear the case and overturn the lower court decision? So that's something the court was supposed to take into account when it decided to issue this this stay. And given that this is a relatively conservative court, one that has sided with the Trump administration on a number of big issues, uh, there's certainly reason for Democrats to worry that they will will never see these documents, at least while Donald Trump is president. Let's talk now about the first case that came before the Supreme Court involving COVID-19. So this was a case involving inmates at a Texas prison for older inmates. And and, and the two men who uh, were pressing the case are ages 69 and 73. And they say that the facility has not done nearly enough to protect us from the coronavirus. And they got a federal district judge to issue an injunction requiring the prison to take a lot of very specific steps, including things like cleaning schedules and making hand sanitizer available. And a federal appeals court then blocked that lower court ruling. And the Supreme Court then said, we are not going to disturb that appeals court decision. We're not going to reinstate the judge's order. We're going to let the litigation go forward without any court-ordered requirements on this prison. So, Greg, a federal appeals court had blocked the judge's order while the case was on appeal. Was that based on specific facts? Because the prison was saying that they were doing a lot already. Yeah, that was part of uh, of what the uh, the appeals court said, and and, and the the district judge's uh, instructions to the, the prison were very very detailed. Uh, and so the argument uh, from Texas officials was always, uh, "Hey, we don't we, we are taking uh, most of these steps already." We don't need court supervision uh, on the details of this, Um, certainly not on on the sort of emergency basis. So now there was no dissent, but Justice Sonia Sotomayor, joined by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, wrote something that sounded a little bit like a dissent. Yeah, it was not a a dissent. She said that there's a really high standard to to intervene at this stage, and, and, and we didn't quite reach that, but she said there were, quote, disturbing allegations that the prison had not taken seriously enough uh, the the threat, and she talked about uh, things like one inmate who had died, and, and she said that it, there were indications that the prison hadn't moved nearly quickly enough to isolate that person, even after he had died of, of coronavirus. And um, you know, she, she pointed to other indications that the prison hadn't actually done anything to improve its cleaning protocols there. And she's just joined by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Only the two of them 
as you said, it wasn't technically a dissent, but it was certainly uh, casting a skeptical eye. Have those two justices been uniting in several opinions lately, or is it just my imagination? No, it's not your imagination. Uh, on all sorts of matters, uh, Sotomayor and Ginsburg have been the two justices who are most inclined to uh, dissent. They are, uh, it's easy enough to characterize them as the two most liberal justices at this point. The other two Democratic appointees, Kagan and Breyer, are much more likely to look for areas of compromise and to, to not rock the boat uh, in the hope of uh, potentially winning over su- some justices to kind of be bridges uh, with justices like the Chief Justice John Roberts. But Sotomayor and Ginsburg are not afraid to point out where they see some sort of, uh, especially in the area of criminal law, where they see what to them is a, is a gross injustice. So when do we hear next from the court? Well, we, we may hear a lot more of these prison-related things. There are a couple more applications involving facilities that are uh, that are pending. This is going to be an ongoing issue as long as the coronavirus is, is a threat uh, and as long as there are complaints that prisons aren't doing enough to protect inmates. So we'll have some more of that. Uh, we should also have the Supreme Court coming back next week with more orders and opinions. One of the big things we are waiting to hear is whether they're going to take up a new Second Amendment case. If you recall, they recently uh, dropped this case involving handgun transportation restrictions in New York City. Now they've got some much bigger Second Amendment issues, and they uh, there are a lot of indications that they will take one of those cases up. And has the court decided whether or not they're going to extend the session? Because usually we hear all the decisions by the end of June. Yeah, they haven't said anything. It's reasonable to to speculate that they will, given how late those telephone arguments took place. Usually the the court hears its last arguments in April. Those arguments were heard in May, and of course they included some really big and potentially complicated issues like the subpoenas for the president's financial information. Uh, and, And of course the justices, like the rest of us, have seen their summer plans scuttled, so uh, we don't have to uh, imagine that they are rushing to get out of town so they can get to their overseas teaching gigs or to, uh, you know, to attend some judicial conference. Uh, they're probably going to be here, so I would not be surprised if we go well into July this year. Are the justices still considering what cases to take next term, or is next term pretty filled? No, it's not filled yet. They have more than they usually do. Uh, or- in, in, you know, around about this time of year, uh, because they had a number of cases that were originally scheduled to be argued this, this term and now will be heard next term. But they've got plenty of room and, uh, we can expect there are a lot of, uh, big issues coming, uh, coming along that they will probably be inclined to take up. So have you gotten any feedback? about how the oral arguments went. Is anyone talking about them and saying, oh, they went really well. We should do this again next year. Well, they they may do them again next year if, if they decide it's not safe to have arguments in the courtroom again. The court has not given us any indication whether they are going to go back to their normal procedures when they return in October. Uh, and given the age of some of the justices, it's, it's uh, not crazy to think that they might have to do this again. In terms of the arguments them, themselves, you know, I think there were mixed views. It, uh, you know, in in some senses, it was a very, it was a rather 
dignified session. There was not a whole lot of uh, talking over one another. Uh, there were some probing questions, and uh, lawyers had a chance to answer. On the other hand, there was this phenomenon where uh, John Roberts was, the Chief Justice, was constantly having to interrupt a lawyer who was answering one justice's question to say, okay, it's time for another justice to a a ask a question. And um, you know, there were a number of people who think that uh, you know, the conversation was caught prematurely in, in a number of places. Thanks for being on Bloomberg Law, Greg, as always. That's Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. The court will be issuing orders on Tuesday of next week, but no opinions are expected next week. Johnson & Johnson's decision to phase out the talc-based version of its iconic baby powder may signal the company is preparing for a global settlement of almost 20,000 pending claims over allegations the product causes cancer. My guest is Carl Tobias, a professor at the University of Richmond Law School. For six years, J&J has been involved in litigation over its iconic baby powder. The company says the decision to phase it out is a commercial decision. But what effect does it have on the pending litigation? Well, I think most people who are close to litigation believe that there now will be some type of substantial global settlement of all the cases. I believe there's something like nearly 20,000 cases around the country that have been filed, many in an MDL, but very few have gone to trial and some have been settled. But I think this is a signal or even admission against interest by the company that these cases are going to be difficult to try. And they've lost a number of them with very substantial verdicts. And so J&J has a reputation for litigating very hard in these situations, but I think this is a sign that now these cases will settle. And so I think that's the signal that we see from that decision. The other problem, of course, is the public relations aspect, because this is a company built its reputation on being family-friendly, and the product is one that has cause very serious cancer to thousands of women, ovarian cancer, mesothelioma, and so these are horrible cases, and the diseases are horrible, and so it seems likely that they will be settled. That may help their public relations as well as the bottom line, but the figures I've seen on settlement are quite high, something between 10 and $20 billion. They've been pretty successful on appeal in either knocking verdicts out or getting the amount knocked down. Did, has anything happened recently, or is it just the accumulation that led them to say, okay, we'll take the product off the market, we'll look toward a settlement now? It's not clear, but I think those cases were the driver. Uh, and each time one of those cases comes out with huge verdicts, even if they are able to have it lowered on appeal because the punitive damages were too high or something of that sort. That reminds consumers of the harm that the product is doing. And so the sales are off as well. And so I just think they are deciding discretion is a better part of valor. We want to have some end date on these cases, and we may need to stop fighting them because of the bad public relations, and we're losing them, even if we win some on appeal. 
And so that's the kind of decision that was made, and we'll see what happens. But most observers are expecting some type of major settlement in the near term. If there is no settlement, could this decision to remove the product from the market find its way into jury trials? Yes, there are different ways in which plaintiffs could be able to introduce some of this. Courts could take judicial notice or that type of thing. But once people know about that and the circumstances of removing it from the shelves, it may just filter through the society and people will know that. They're sitting on a jury or counsel raises it or judges take notice of that. Plaintiffs are more likely to win the cases and more likely to have larger verdicts. So that's a problem for the company. Is there any parallel litigation from the past, mass tort litigation, that mirrors what's happened to J&J? Well, in some sense, yes. I mean, because if you think of the large verdicts, for example, in Vioxx, some of the cases in MDL, and then the large global settlement, it's somewhat similar, not exactly the same. Um, But some of the dynamics are, are similar. And some of the ongoing opioid litigation, you see similar patterns. And so we'll see what happens uh, into the future. But it looks like a settlement's coming. I've often wondered with these global settlements, do you have a plaintiff sometimes who will not settle? And then what happens? Do they make a separate deal with them? Yes, often they will. Um, There may be some discounts or there's an agreement if you win in a trial court that There won't be an appeal, but um, the amount of the verdict might be lowered, um, and it it may be worth it to the plaintiff not to take the risk of perhaps losing on appeal. So those negotiations would be part of settlement, too. A J&J spokeswoman said the decision to phase out the product has no impact on their legal position. Quote, we are confident in our legal strategy and our defense, which is supported by decades of scientific evidence showing our talc is safe and does not contain asbestos. Coming up next on Bloomberg Law, another controversial nominee to one of the country's most conservative federal appeals courts. Another controversial nominee to arguably the most conservative appellate court in the country. Corey Wilson is up for a seat on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit that has been vacant since 2017. Democrats question Wilson about his past writings critical of Obamacare, LGBTQ issues, and questioning voter suppression claims. I've been talking to Professor Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond Law School. Why has this seat seemingly been hard to fill? Well, Judge Ozerden, the judge from the uh, Southern District of Mississippi, who was Trump's first nominee for the vacancy that has uh, been open for a couple of years now, since uh, Grady Jolly took senior status, wasn't sufficiently conservative for the Senate Judiciary Committee, especially Senator Cruz and Senator Hawley from Missouri. And so they suggested they would not vote for him, and so he wasn't going to come out of committee. And so finally, his name was withdrawn. And now they have uh, taken uh, Judge Wilson, who's on the appellate court in Mississippi, nominated for the Southern District, and moved him up as the nominee for the Fifth Circuit. And so he had a hearing uh, on 
Wednesday. What I'm curious about is he has been sitting as a judge for about a year on a state court. And similarly, we had Justin Walker, who's been sitting about a year on a district court. Why are they moving these judicial nominees who haven't had that much experience up to the circuit courts when there are so many others available who have more experience? Well, I think the answer is we're coming to the end of the administration, and they want to be certain that they fill every vacancy available, especially on the important appeals courts like the Fifth Circuit and D.C. Circuit. And, for example, with Walker, he was confirmed for the district, served for five months, six months in the Western District of Kentucky, I think 15 months for Wilson in the appellate court in Mississippi. And basically, they've been through most of the process, at least for Wilson. And, of course, Walker was confirmed by the Senate. And so that makes it easier and quicker. You, All the background work has already been done by FBI, the committee, uh, members of the committee. And so it shortens the time period. And they also have views that are congenial with those politically of members of the Senate. Uh, for example, as Senator Durbin pointed out yesterday, both Walker and Wilson vociferously opposed uh, Obamacare before they were nominated. And so many Democrats, especially Durbin, were concerned that instead of addressing the pandemic, the committee was uh, bringing forward people who uh, seemed staunchly opposed to uh, the ACA. Some critics say that they were nominated specifically because of their hostility to Obamacare. Well, I think that's right. I think that's what Democratic senators were suggesting yesterday and earlier in Walker's hearing, and both were scheduled while the pandemic was raging. Uh, Rather than have the committee address uh, all of the issues that are relevant to the ongoing pandemic. Uh, some of which fall within the jurisdiction of the Judiciary Committee. And so it seems as if the Republican majority has a pin ear on what's actually happening. So that's what uh, seems so striking, and I think ironic was the word used by Senator Durbin yesterday. It also strikes me that in Wilson, they've picked someone who has engaged in a lot of inflammatory rhetoric, from calling President Barack Obama king to joining in the crooked Hillary kinds of attacks. It seems like he has more inflammatory rhetoric than most judicial nominees. That's correct. Uh, And though a number of Trump nominees have use similar rhetoric, especially during the Obama years. But Wilson excused all of that by saying, I understand the difference in the role of being uh, a judge and being a legislator. He was elected to uh, the Mississippi uh, State House uh, and then uh, appointed to the Intermediate Court of Appeals last year. And he's just saying, I, my role as a judge is completely different than my role as a commentator or even as a legislator. Those issues are now settled for courts to apply that precedent faithfully, and I would do so. Those are direct quotes from him. Senator Graham said something like to the Democrats, why are you 
investigating his views here. Of course, we're going to choose people who match our views. When you get in power, you choose people who match your views. Does that belie this notion that these judges are going to apply the law as written, interpret the law as written, without any regard, as this judge kept saying, to their personal views? Well, the Democrats think that uh, that's precisely why these nominees are being chosen. Uh, And we talked before about the Federalist Society and its role. And so it's a matter of who you believe. Um, but uh, the process is so hyper-partisan, um, and the nominees themselves uh, have been so partisan in their criticisms that it's troubling what they have said before they went on the bench. Uh, and Democrats, I think, appropriately raise the question of temperament. If you engage in personal attacks on uh, high-ranking officials uh, in the other party that you, whom you oppose, what kind of temperament would you have on the bench? And, of course, Democrats keep asking the uh, judicial nominees whether they can put aside their um, preconceived notions and avoid making policy judgments on the bench. And, of course, they say, of course I can do that. Um, But it hasn't really shown up in their decisions once they are on the bench. And so uh, Democrats are dubious. Uh, and have expressed that view. And so we'll see. I expect we'll have another party line vote on Wilson when they return in June, as they will for uh, Walker. Trump has appointed five judges already to the Fifth Circuit. Isn't that a large number for one circuit in a three-year period? How did they have so many vacancies? Well, it, it is a pretty large number. I believe there. 18 or so active judges on that court. But at least as to the Texas vacancies, there were very long vacancies in two of the seats that are allocated to Texas. And the home state senators, Cornyn and Cruz, failed to cooperate with the White House in um, recommending people for those two vacancies for years. So they held them open. And then a third one was someone on the court who from Texas who was appointed ambassador to a country in South America, and he retired. And so those three vacancies were filled. And in Louisiana, there were a couple of vacancies, and those were filled by Trump. So that's the answer. And then there's this sixth vacancy where Judge Jolly took senior status a couple of years ago. The Fifth Circuit is already considered the most conservative circuit in the country. Was it also as conservative before the Trump nominees took the bench? It was very conservative, probably the most conservative court in the country uh, in 2017. But uh, now it's clearly the most conservative because of the Trump nominees. And pretty soon... If Wilson's confirmed, he will have named around a third of the active judges on that court. And so you have to look at the legacy that's left. They'll sit for 30 or more years. So you're replacing people in their 60s, 70s with people who are in their 40s. McConnell, how is he moving these judges through during the pandemic? Are there any problems that the pandemic has raised for him? Well, 
for both the Walker hearing and the Wilson hearing, there were only those individual circuit nominees before the committee. And typically before the pandemic, there would be a circuit judge nominee and three or four district nominees. So again, they're emphasizing the appellate nominees and de-emphasizing the district nominees, even though they're 20 or 30 awaiting hearing. So I don't know what they'll do. Hopefully that would pick up in June and July, but we'll see because there's July 4th week and then August recess. So McConnell may have them work in August, but they're pretty far behind on the district nominees. On the other hand, uh, three nominees came forward for uh, confirmation votes, and all three were easily confirmed, uh, two for emergency vacancies. And on the Monday they come back, um, there'll be a cloture vote on a fourth person. Um, three of the four are from red states, which is continuing a pattern. And so that's kind of where the status is. There, there are presently 71 district vacancies nationwide. So that's lower than it has been for some time. And I think 42 uh, or 43 emergency vacancies. And that's better than it has been. But still, there's a long way to go. Thanks, Carl. That's Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond Law School. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show weeknights at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.